You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A content warning before we begin. Today's episode is an enthusiastic examination of cannibalism, with everything that entails. I don't work blue, but I'm also not pulling any punches, so don't blame me if you decide not to eat that rare steak or that plate of ribs. There are many reasons why an individual or group of people would eat other people, such as religious rites, shows of superiority, signs of respect, but of course also out of necessity. Few people think of the Donner Party's ill-fated trek through the Sierra Nevadas or the rugby team whose plane crashed in the Andes in 1972 without thinking of people driven to cannibalism in a desperate attempt to stave off death. But there are also the Aztecs, whose cannibalistic human sacrifices were the highest gift they could give their gods, or the Wari people, who consume their dead so that their spirits may move on. So let's split cannibalism into four often overlapping categories. By choice, by necessity, endocannibalism, eating people within your group, and exocannibalism, eating people outside of your group. I feel a scatterplot diagram coming on. My name's Moxie. And this is your Brain on Facts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. It would probably be more accurate to refer to today's topic as anthropophagy, meaning the eating of man, rather than cannibalism. The word cannibal comes from a group of people who may not have eaten human flesh at all. Cannibal comes from cannibales, the name that the Spanish gave to the Caribs, the natives of the Caribbean islands. The Spanish accused the tribe of ritualistically eating their enemies, but most of the initial reports come from Christopher Columbus who had both personal and political reasons to make them seem as savage as possible. Because the Caribs were engaged in an anti-colonial battle with a host of European powers, some historians now argue the cannibalism reports were a propaganda. That being said, there is some evidence that the Caribs used body parts of conquered enemies as trophies, so it is a possibility that they also ate them, as an intimidation tactic or an act of war. So even if modern anthropologists, scientists, and word nerds like myself prefer the term anthropophagy, we're going to use cannibalism, since that's the common parlance. Before we talk about the whys for cannibalism, let's talk about the why-nots. There's a biological reason why cannibalism is taboo in many cultures. Eating other humans can make you sick. Specifically, eating the brain of another human being can cause kuru, a prion disease of the brain, similar to mad cow disease. It was first observed in the Foray people of Papua New Guinea, who practiced funereal endocannibalism, eating the corpses of their dead as a mourning ritual. The name kuru comes from their word for shiver or tremble. Symptoms include loss of coordination, involuntary movements, behavioral and mood changes, dementia, and difficulty eating. 
There is no known cure, and it's usually fatal within one year of contraction, either from damage to the central nervous system or malnutrition. If you've seen the movie The Book of Eli, the older couple surviving surprisingly well on their barren, isolated farm with a questionable number of graves out back, exhibited signs of Kuru. Interestingly, further research found that a certain percentage of the foray were born immune to Kuru, as though the tribe were adapting to eating human flesh. But nonetheless, they were convinced to change their funeral rites just to be safe. On the flip side, there's always a flip side, bits of bods were once sold as medicine. You may remember people eating powdered Egyptian mummy from episode 16, Mummy's Day. In Germany, from the 1600s to the 1800s, executioners often had a bizarre side business to supplement their income, selling leftover body parts as medicine. As described in Kathy Stewart's Defiled Trades and Social Outcasts, human fat was sold as a remedy for broken bones, sprains, and arthritis. Usually, this human fat was rubbed as a salve, not eaten. If you have one of those moms who uses Vicks VapoRub to cure everything, doesn't look so bad now, does it? Apothecaries regularly stocked fat, flesh, and bone. Skulls were ground into a fine powder and mixed with exotic, expensive chocolate to treat epilepsy. Or the skulls were soaked in alcohol to make a tincture to cure gout, dropsy, and all fevers putrid and pestilent. If there was moss on the skull, bonus medicine. The skull powder was not the most stomach-turning therapy for epilepsy, though. You could be given the brains of a young man that hath died a violent death, mashed in a stone mortar, steeped in wine, and digested half a year in horse dung before distilling. People in old-timey times believed that like cured like. So, if you had a toothache, you might be made to wear a bag of corpse teeth around your neck, to eat powdered hair to cure baldness, or to drink, eat powdered, or apply topically someone else's blood for any sort of bleeding. Speaking of like helps like, we have some like-minded and generous patrons who have joined our Patreon page. Our newest patrons this week are Charles Bizzle, Seth Alcorn, Nathan Dayton, and fellow burlesker Adam Balm. In addition to public adoration, these generous folks will be getting a bonus mini-episode each month for their $5 pledge, and the one of them who pledged $10 will also get early access to each week's episode. It's not realistic to think that I could support myself with the podcast. Not yet. But the Patreon page is well on its way to making it so that I'm not losing money in my effort to fill the world with facts. You too can support the show for as little as $2 a month at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. If you'd like to help the show without bringing money into it, the best way is to share it with your friends. Try swiping up on the listening screen of your app. In most programs, that will present you with your social media share options. Every share, retweet, and word-of-mouth recommendation is appreciated. Most of us know cannibals from news reports of serial killers or the Donner Party, who have been largely exonerated by recent anthropological evidence, by the way. So let's start off with ritualistic cannibalism. A ritual is an ordered set of events with religious or social importance. 
Throughout the world, cannibalism has played a part in ceremonies like funerals and sacrifices. As with the Foray people of New Guinea, the Wari tribe from the Amazon practiced endocannibalism as a way to transform their bodies into spirits. The spirit then becomes an animal to provide food for future generations. The thought of leaving their family member's body intact in the earth to decompose is as repugnant to the Wari as the thought of their practices to us, but Christian missionaries forced them to do it anyway. Following the death of a tribesman, family members would mourn and wail inconsolably over the corpse for several days, even as it began to putrefy. They were waiting long enough to ensure that the spirit had been able to leave the body. The body was then cut into pieces, roasted, placed on clean ceremonial mats, and distributed among the relatives, with the most important pieces, like the brain, heart, and liver, going to the parents and village elders. The Agoris of northern India, a caste even lower than the untouchables, consume the flesh of the dead floated in the Ganges in pursuit of immortality and supernatural powers. The Amawaka of Peru picked particles of bone out of the ashes of a cremation fire, ground them with corn, and drank them as a kind of porridge. The Anomami of Brazil believed the soul is only able to achieve full salvation if the dead body is burned after death, and the ash is eaten by the family of the dead person, mixed with bananas during a festival. Before you think Europe didn't have funereal endocannibalism, they got pretty close as relatively recently as medieval times, in Central Europe and what is now Germany, where dough was left to rise on a corpse's chest, then baked and broken up among mourners. They believed that the corpse cake, as it was called, would absorb the positive traits of the dead person and transfer it to those who ate it. The Aztec Legend of the Five Sons tells how the gods all sacrificed themselves so that mankind could live, which created in the Aztecs a sense of indebtedness toward the gods. While they gave offerings of food and sacrifices of animals, the greatest repayment was the sacrifice of humans. One god, Zipetotec, was the god of rebirth, agriculture, the seasons, and craftsmen. During the festival of Cacapoisti, captured warriors and slaves were sacrificed in the ceremonial center of the city of Tenochtitlan. The victims were then taken to the Zipetotec temple, where their hearts would be removed, their bodies dismembered, and body parts divided up to be eaten later. Sometimes cannibalism has ritualistic significance to a single individual, as opposed to a broad culture or organized religion. Lovers of true crime have seen this come up many times in accounts of serial killers who attach great importance to eating their victims. For one example of criminal cannibalism with a unique religious bent, welcome the first of our two guests today, Heather Wright from the Nature vs. Narcissism podcast. Hello, I'm Heather from the Nature vs. Narcissism and Status Pending Podcasts. Nature vs. Narcissism is a true crime podcast mixed with some dark humor. We discuss serial killers in an alphabetical order and try to determine why they commit the vile acts that they do. Status Pending is an investigative podcast that I co-host with Scott Fuller of the Frozen Truth Podcast. We take a three-part look into cases that are unresolved, open without any solid leads, or closed prematurely. Okay, let's get to it. 
I'm super excited to be helping Moxie out with a special episode of Your Brain on Facts. And today I'll be discussing Brazilian cannibal Jorge Baltero Negromonte. Jorge was the youngest of four brothers. His father was a respected lawyer and his mother was a university professor. He was born in the Brazilian city of Recife and both of his parents were Portuguese immigrants. From all accounts, Jorge was a successful man. He graduated from the state university, opened a gym, and then joined a group of young activists fighting the military dictatorship before meeting and marrying Isabel in 1984. In 2003, he met Bruna, who at the time was just 16 years old. He said that she just came up and kissed him one day. From that point on, it was almost as if she was controlling him. He was a diagnosed schizophrenic who was convinced to stop taking his medications by none other than Bruna. During the jailhouse interviews, Jorge would change his story over and over, one minute claiming that he never intended to kill anyone, then immediately turning around the next minute stating that he harbored a hatred for uneducated mothers. He said that these mothers were producing low lives and thieves, not offering anything good or positive to society. He was quite resentful as he was unable to father any children himself. So how did the killings and cannibalism begin? Jorge and his wife, Isabel, 54, and Mistress Bruna, 24, formed a religious sect together and eight women, believing that it would cleanse the victim of their sins. They were convinced the girls would give birth to thieves and lowlives, as previously mentioned, so together they practiced what they called population control. They would lure young women to their home and murder them. According to Jorge, Bruna was a witch who was inspired to cook and kill the women by a book of satanic rituals. Jorge states that it was Bruna's idea to murder and eat the women, and she knew how to control him. There were at least three victims of this terror trio, which is what I'm calling them. However, Jorge hints that there may be many more victims that the police know nothing about. Their first victim was Jessica Pereira, 17, who lived in squalor with her 18-month-old baby girl. They brought her milk, nappies, and a new cot to convince her to move in with them. She did. But when she tried to go back to her family in May of 2008, they murdered her, stripped her flesh, and stored it in the freezer before burying her bones in the backyard. Jorge claims that he only remembers flashes of what occurred. He recalls Bruna telling him that Jessica was a bad person who has no love for her own daughter. Jorge then remembers blood spurting from her neck, her dead body lying on the bathroom floor, then her body cut up into little pieces. They later cooked her body parts, seasoned with salt and oregano, then ate her flesh, even feeding it to her 18-month-old daughter. Bruna decided to keep the daughter and raise her as her own, taking over the identity of Jessica. Four years later, they moved to Joel Pessoa, where they purchased a small holding. The police ended up kicking down their door and threatened to arrest them while investigating a disturbance nearby. However, Jorge gave the chief the small holding and all of the furniture inside. The police didn't bat another eye, and the terror trio were free. They moved to Garanhuns, which was roughly 100 miles inland, where they began selling books filled with their teachings, including a chapter describing how Jorge killed, skinned, and served up Jessica for his harem. So, now that they're in a new place, it was time for him to kill again. His second known victim was Giselle Helena da Silva, 21. Jorge thought that she could be a good friend of Bruna's, so he asked her for her number. Bruna told Jorge that Giselle wasn't so great after all. In fact, she said that Giselle confided in Bruna, telling her that she had tried to kill her own son and that she had beaten up her young nephew. So Bruna lured Giselle over to the house, and when Jorge walked into the kitchen holding a hammer, Bruna looked at him and said, it can be now. Again, Jorge implies that he didn't remember killing her, that all he does recall is the flashes, the reflection of a kitchen knife, a body, a dead person in the bathroom, and the shower water running. Jorge realized what he had done the next day when he saw all of the meat in the fridge. It was already prepared and ready to consume. 
So that's exactly what Jorge, Isabel, Bruna, and now the five-year-old adopted daughter did. They sat down and ate their victim. Only two weeks went by before they lured their next victim to their home. 20-year-old Alexandra da Silva Falco was offered a babysitting job by the trio, only to arrive at her place of death. Jorge stated that it took four days to finish eating her body. Before they could jump to the next victim, Bruna was caught on closed-circuit TV using Giselle's credit card one month after she disappeared. Of course, at first, all three suspects denied killing anyone. However, later at the police station, Isabel admitted to dismembering the women's bodies and burying them in the house. Jorge is one of 997 criminals crammed into Disembargador Augusto Duke Prison, which was built to house just 144 inmates. He normally shares his five-bed cell with 33 other prisoners. He was sentenced to 23 years in prison in November of 2013 for murdering three young women aged 17, 20, and 21. He also stated that they stuffed plenty of the human meat into pastries known as empanadas that they sold on the streets close to his home in Garanhuns, northeastern Brazil. The police chief stated that he was a fan of the empanadas sold by the road and asked if the women's meat was used in those as well, to which Jorge replied yes. Jorge agrees with his punishment, but not due to remorse. He said, for people to be safe, I need to be in here. If I were let out as I am today, I could kill another one. Human meat, for me, is no different to beef. Thanks, Heather. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. The exo-cannibalistic practice of eating one's enemies is as old as time. The Scythians, Chinese, Maori, Iroquois, Ashanti, Aztec, Anasazi, and many others are known to have eaten the hearts and other body parts of slain enemies. While the heart was eaten to gain courage and power, other body parts, such as the brain and tongue, would give knowledge and bravery. Of the heart of a celebrated enemy, the king and his dignitaries are said to partake, says the London Encyclopedia written in 1829 when describing the customs of the Ashantis of Western Africa. They make a practice of cutting out the hearts of the slain, which they mix with consecrated herbs, and after much ceremony, compel those who have never killed an enemy to eat. 
the Sioux of North America would powder the hearts and eat them that way. Whether the Maori warriors of New Zealand committed cannibalism or not is highly debated. Some historians believe that it was just Europeans trying to paint the Maori as wild savages. However, tribal oral history and archaeological evidence do suggest that the Maori warriors indulged in cannibalizing defeated foes. There are a few theories as to why. One was to internalize the enemy's spirit, or it could have been done in a fit of post-battle rage. Another theory is that it was to send a message to their enemies. What greater humiliation could you do to your enemy than to chomp them up, eat them, and pass them later? The Atacapa of the Gulf of Mexico may have eaten vanquished enemies, but the report for this comes from the Choctaw tribe, their enemies. Likewise, we only have Rome's account of the Celts eating conquered foes, and while I'm having trouble finding research to corroborate that, there is evidence that the Druids practiced ritual sacrifice. The bog body, known as Lindau Man, had mistletoe pollen on it. Mistletoe was so sacred to the Druids that it could only be cut with golden scissors and could not be allowed to touch the ground. It's believed that sacrifices like Lindau Man were made in order to halt the encroaching Roman forces. Eating the flesh of enemies is in no way relegated to the distant past, either. During the Khmer Rouge Rebellion of the 1970s, Cambodian troops reportedly cut out and ate Khmer Rouge soldiers' hearts and livers. Sometimes they brought the meat home for dinner, sometimes they ate it right on the battlefield. More recently, former Liberian President Charles Taylor sentenced last year to 50 years in prison for aiding and abetting rebels in Sierra Leone during the 1991-2002 Civil War, was accused of ordering his militia to eat the flesh of captured enemies and UN soldiers. Taylor himself reportedly ate the hearts and livers of dead soldiers. War breeds cannibalism in a few different ways, not only trophies and power-assuming. During the 872-day Siege of Leningrad, reports of cannibalism began to appear in the first winter, after all of the birds, vermin, and pets in the city had been eaten. Leningrad police even formed a special division to combat it. Cannibalism was no stranger to the POW camps, where Nazis deliberately starved Russian prisoners. In a turn of grotesque karma, 100,000 German soldiers faced the same conditions after they were shipped off to Siberia following their defeat at Stalingrad. Over in the Pacific Theater, Japanese soldiers began eating POWs when their daily rations were cut to 50 grams, just under two ounces, of rice and tinned meat a day. Cannibalism was often a systematic activity conducted by whole squads and under the command of officers, says historian Yuki Tanaka. Neither is war the only way a government can create a pro-cannibal situation. The Russian famine of 1921 killed 5 million people around the Volga and Ural rivers, when Lenin's policy of seizing food from peasants caused a devastating man-made famine. The peasant class not only ate human flesh, they traded it on the black market as a means of meager income. Arising from similar deliberate government action, the North Korean famine of the 1990s generated reports of cannibalism, which Kim Jong-il tried to crack down on in 1996. But some Chinese travelers reported it in 1998, 
three people in Korea were reported to have been executed for selling or eating human flesh in 2006, and further reports of cannibalism have emerged as recently as 2013. The same goes for Mao's Great Leap Forward, when the chairman tried to move China from agriculture to industry in one fell swoop in 1958, causing the Great Chinese Famine instead. There are countless incidents in human history where eating other people was the sole remaining chance for survival. In the aforementioned Andean plane crash, those who were mentally prepared to eat the dead convinced those who were not by using their Catholic faith. Their reasoning was that God had provided them with the means to save their own lives, no matter how awful, and to refuse it would be suicide, a mortal sin. Sometimes it's a small group or a single individual faced with this dilemma, such as unqualified frontier guide Alfred Packard, after whom the University of Colorado students named one of their dining halls, and to whom a judge declared, There were seven Democrats in Hinsdale County, and you up and ate five of them. I sentenced you to be hanged by the neck until you are dead, dead, dead. Then there are those for whom eating people is just another day at the office. To tell you more about a legendary clan of cannibals is my second guest, Seth Alcorn from the Bad Medicine Comedy Troupe and their podcast, Sketch Nerds. Alexander Sawney Bean began his activities around 1576. He was the son of a poor farmer or laborer, and after discovering that he didn't like hard work, he left home with Agnes Douglas, who was also not in favor of hard work and had been accused of being a witch. They found a cave on Benning Head near Galloway in the west of Scotland. The cave's entrance was covered at high tide, so it was a great hiding place. And from there, they began to rob passers-by. Now, Scotland, not a rich country. Passers-by didn't have a whole lot of money. So, uh, Sawney and Agnes decided to go as green as they possibly could and just eat their victims. They also had eight sons and six daughters in their cave. Uh, the sons and daughters took to incest like Targaryens on a spree. They ended up with 18 grandsons and 14 granddaughters, so that is 48 total incestuous cannibals. So the beans would pickle their victims for safekeeping, but occasionally body parts would wash up on shore. I assume because they were flinging their leftovers or their spoiled meat uh, into the ocean, and the ocean has a habit of returning things back to land if you, uh, you throw garbage in from the beach. So they proceeded in this fashion for 25 years until they finally robbed a couple on horseback. The man got away, the woman did not. But since the man got away, news finally got around about Sonny and his family. Now, People had noticed the disappearances of the body parts for 25 years, but apparently nobody had ever thought to do anything about it until this unnamed man went to report the loss of his wife and his attack by a, a large clan of cannibals. So James VI of Scotland, who would later become James I of England, got a band of 400 men and some bloodhounds and went off to Galloway to find the beans, and he did. He captured them, and he took them to the toll booth, which was a prison in Edinburgh, and from there they were sent to Leith and Glasgow. There was no trial. The men of the Bean family were castrated, dismembered, and allowed to bleed to death. 
Sonny Bean himself reportedly said, It isn't over. It'll never be over. Or something like that, perhaps in a better dialect. The women and children were burned at the stake after watching the men die. Now, I mentioned earlier that there might have been a 49th member of the family. There are no contemporary records of Sonny Bean or his family. There's no hue and cry about any disappearances in any personal papers in the Galloway area at the time the toll booth, the prison in Edinburgh to which they were supposedly sent, has no records of receiving 48 incestuous cannibals. It probably couldn't have fit 48 incestuous cannibals at the time that this was all happening in the early 17th century, so the early 1600s. The toll booth probably consisted of one ruined tower, so no room for the beans. James, good old James VI of Scotland, first of England, doesn't have any receipts for a hunting party of 400 people and bloodhounds anywhere in his exchequer, so the Treasury Department, so that doesn't seem to be terribly likely, and there's no mention of the executions anywhere in any personal papers at the time, and since they got castrated and dismembered or burned at the stake, this would have been something to note. Usually executions didn't include 48 people and weren't necessarily as cruel unless someone was getting executed for treason or the like. But, you know, that is just facts getting in the way of a good story. Sonny doesn't actually appear until the 18th century, so we're talking the early 1700s, which is about a century after he was supposedly killed. And when he does appear, it's in sensationalist chapbooks and broadsheets, so the equivalent of modern-day tabloid journalism, if you want to think of them as the weekly world news of their day, with Sonny taking the place of the modern bat boy. So there are some theories that because of the timing of the, the Sonny Bean myth and its popularization, that it was actually intended to cast the Scots as a primitive people who needed the enlightened hand of England to rule them because the early 1700s was when England and Scotland formally joined in the Union of Great Britain. If you enjoyed this, and I hope you did, you can find me at the Sketch Nerds podcast. I should also mention that our host, Moxie, has appeared on the Sketch Nerds podcast, and we had a great discussion about uh, the Marx Brothers. Happy Halloween. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Though if you've listened to even one other episode, you know that's not true. I didn't even get into cannibalism in the animal kingdom, like hammerhead sharks with a taste for their own kind, or fetal sand tiger sharks who eat all of their siblings until only one big baby shark emerges. To say nothing of cane toads, lions, and even squirrels. So I guess I'll leave you with one of my dad's classic bad jokes. Why don't cannibals eat clowns? Because they taste funny. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode is brought to you by the word crust. Crust. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into 
unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.